Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the session this afternoon. My name is Jennifer Jones. I'm a committee member, and I'm very pleased to be able to introduce to you two wonderful writers. We're very privileged to have them here today. But before we do that, let's acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which we meet and learn and pay our respects to the traditional owners, the Rotary people, and acknowledge the role of the elders, past, present and future, as the ones who hold the culture and transmit the culture and, and love their culture. So, um, thank you. Um, let me introduce our guest speakers. Today we have um, Tony Birch, who's the author of six books, Shadow Boxing, Father's Day, Blood, the Promise, Ghost River, and Common People, which was published in 2017. And, and our, these books, I believe a lot of them are available to be purchased this afternoon at, at the desk. We also have Bruce Pascoe, who is of Bunurong, Yuan and Tasmanian heritage. Bruce is a multi-award winning author of fiction and non-fiction, and his recent book, Dark Emu, Black Seeds, Agriculture or Accident, won the 2016 New South Wales Premier's Book of the Year Award. So welcome Bruce and Tony to discuss the importance of recovery and regeneration of Indigenous knowledges and identity. And I think we're in for a real treat. Thank you. Um, I want to thank everyone for, for coming. Um, it's a wonderful crowd. Is um, not unexpected, considering um, that I'm having the great pleasure of introducing and um, interviewing Bruce Pascoe. Um, I want to extend my acknowledgement of country to traditional owners of this land and their ancestors and their future um, youth. I also though, want to extend that, as I always do, to yourselves for coming and to your families and to your elders and to your communities, and we pay our respect to your communities wherever you come from around this state, this country, or from, from other parts of, of, of the world. So we want to ex extend our hospitality on Indigenous land to everyone here. I also want to thank at the outset again, although we did this last night, to thank Anne-Marie in particular, but all of the um, organisers and volunteers of the festival. Um, we did say last night that um, this is a wonderful festival. I've been lucky to be here before. It's also... Um, Wonderful to be in parts of, of regional Australia because I think you, you engage with people who have real passion for ideas, real passion for reading, real passion for conversation. So um, we both feel very um, privileged and very fortunate to be here, so we want to thank you. Um, Bruce Pascoe is um, a man who's been an enormous influence on, I want to say firstly, the Aboriginal community, um, particularly in Victoria, but um, not only restricted to Victoria. I've been lucky to, to interview Bruce. This will be the fourth formal interview around the ideas of um, Dark Emu. But it's also um, Bruce. I spent a lot of time with Bruce both in Australia and overseas. And I've seen Bruce um, in the role of mentoring um, young and up and coming Aboriginal writers. And he is a major um, solid influence on their lives. So his um, intellect and his creativity um, is something that is having a major impact on the way that young Aboriginal people think and produce work in this country, and, and we're, we're absolutely indebted to him for that. Um, also, of course, this book, um, 
dark emu. I, I, I was almost going to say that it has an afterlife, but it, it's not an afterlife. It's, a, it's a, a just the life that keeps... It's the gift that keeps on giving. Um, it's a remarkable book that is, since its initial publication, it has just grown in influence and it has spurned so, spurred so many different <coughs> ideas and so many different ways of thinking about um, Aboriginal um, intellect, Aboriginal science and Aboriginal... Um, agriculture in this country, um, it just becomes more important with each reading, with each conversation. And again, of course, we're indebted um, to Bruce for that. Um, Bruce um, Pascoe, in, in fact, describes himself, um, this is a self-description where Bruce Pascoe described himself as, as one of Andrew Bolt's great disappointments. <laughs> um, such as the generosity of Pascoe that he still calls Andrew Bolt affectionately Bolty rather than Andrew and it shows that regardless of what Mr Bolt has said um, in an attempt to, to defame any Aboriginal person, Bruce extends his generosity and hospitality to Andrew Bolt but um, apparently he couldn't be here today. Um, <laughs> I want to begin, Bruce, by asking you a question that I, that I haven't asked before but if you could just um, tell us why you chose the name Dark Emu for the book, so where that name comes from, or what's the meaning of that name, and why is it so relevant to the title of this book? Well, I, I called it Dark Emu as a relief of my own ignorance, because while I was uh, working on the book, I was shown the Dark Emu in the sky. In the Milky Way, there's a dark space there. The head of the bird is the coal sack in European parlance, and uh, I was stunned to think that I had um, not seen it. Um, so I was very impressed, and I live in the country, so I'm able to see it every night, and it became a, a friend, and I thought that it was a great symbol for the, for the book, which is all about country, and the emu is the creator spirit by army, of Aboriginal people and is also a bird of the plains, a, a grass eater and a lot of dark emu is about Australian uh, grains, Australian domesticated foods. They're not the foods that we're growing in this country at the moment uh, but they, they will become important agricultural uh, products and uh, we hope that when they do become agricultural products, that Aboriginal people will be remembered as their domesticators. The other thing that's relevant to that choice of words, and I think this goes to the heart of uh, my sense, is, is what you, you see as being missed in relationship to the depth of um, Aboriginal intellect and knowledge. You have a statement where you said, we listen to the dark. And that, that was in reference to you know, this notion that Aboriginal people were afraid of the dark, which you, yeah, you said rightly was a nonsense. But you say we listen to the dark again. Specifically, can you give us a sense of what that means? And in a greater sense, I think what you're saying is there are so many aspects of how Aboriginal people relate to country, relate to sky, that, that um, non-Aboriginal society simply doesn't understand. Well, Aboriginal people, of course, um, lived very close to the earth, Mother Earth, uh, was a constant solace for our people. Uh, so we're constantly aware of everything that happened on the earth, the movement of every animal, the movement of insects, plants and stars, 
So we became intimate uh, with the earth and, and listened, um, listened for its story. And once again, because I live in the country, um, um, unfortunately I'm pretty deaf, so my listening is uh, abbreviated, but uh, I listen all night. I'm listening for owls, I'm listening for wombats, and I'm listening for kangaroos grazing on the grass outside and they are reassurances for me. So we do um, listen to the dark. And um, Uncle Max Harrison says, you have to look at the country talking to you. And people say, no, you should be listening to the country talking to you. And he says, no, I mean look. You have to watch the country uh, to find out its stories. And uh, those stories, the night stories, are very important in my fiction writing. I've written a collection of stories called Night Animals, mm. and uh, the next collection of stories was called Night Jar, after that beautiful, underrated um, Australian night bird, the night jar, uh, in its various forms. So the night's very important to me, and ever since I was a child, um, I've been unafraid of the dark. I lived up on King Island, you know, we just wandered all over that island and I've always felt that there was nothing in the night that would hurt me. Um, I would, it wasn't because I was fearless, uh, I was fearsome, but I felt that if I behaved correctly, nothing in the night was going to hurt me. I've, um, I wandered down to the jetty near my place every night, sometimes with a glass of wine, often with a glass of beer. When you were a kid? When I, was a, when I was three. No, no. <laughs> now. And, um, you know, I've had, because it's pitch dark when the moon's not, not out, but I know the path so I can feel it and walk along it. But I've had kangaroos run past and uh, brush my beard and, um, you know, that causes you some pause. But apart from that, I really feel as if um, no harm can come to me, even though the snakes are about this time of the year at night. Um, I haven't been bitten yet. It's interesting, I mean, just not as an aside, but um, you bring that question up about um, both listening to and looking to the land. It's one of the, I think, one of the real problems we face. So in my work, as you know, my daytime job working on climate change and Indigenous knowledge is that um, there are many Aboriginal communities that you know, whitefellow government will call remote communities, but of course in Aboriginal life are centred communities. But if you think of some communities in Western Australia that are, that are threatened with closure, if those communities lose access to, to their land or if they're forced into towns, that listening, that knowledge of country will be lost. And for people who are aware and conversant on the subtle changes we need to be aware of in regard to climate change, it's yeah. clearly a great loss to, to national knowledge, or knowledge that could be of assistance to at a national level. Well, our, our country hasn't fully realised yet that they need Aboriginal knowledge. And it's amazing when you make a, a chart of those uh, communities in Western Australia and Northern Territory listed for closure and you put that, an overlay of the minerals of Australia um, over that, uh, they match perfectly, absolutely perfectly. So Twiggy Forest, the friend of Aboriginal people, uh, the great employer of Aboriginal people, um, is dragging in 
people not from country to talk about country um, who he has um, reached an assurance with that uh, they will allow mining on their country. It's the most cynical operation on earth and uh, unfortunately our country doesn't investigate it. Our newspapers don't investigate it uh, closely enough to see that we're being led by the nose uh, by uh, racist governments. And sorry, John Howard, for using the word racist. I know it upsets you, um, but we do have to call a spade a spade. I mean, it's interesting that um, it goes to my next question, which is, I suppose, at one level, a philosophical um, and spiritual question, but um, I was reflecting last week that, you know, with a discussion over, you know, things like Australia Day and the desecration of um, monuments, etc. But one of my, my reflections was, again, in relationship to work I've done, there have been about over 1,000 Indigenous spiritual sites reclassified in Western Australia to lose their heritage status in recent years to allow mining to take place. So these were sites that the Western Australian government itself had registered as major sites of heritage value for Aboriginal people, and they were deregistered within the last 12 months to allow for mining leases. I mean, again, it's interesting you say what our media does or doesn't do, because if we were going to have the conversation we had last week, it seemed to me that was one of the very um, conversations we also needed to have. I want to ask you a question, though, that I think is relative to this. You've also said that we are, we are living with a shadow, and you talk about a shadow of depression, anxiety, addiction, and you say that there's a conversation that we need to have, that we're not having, and because we're not having that conversation, as well as us suffering, that the land is actually absorbs our pain. So I suppose the, a simple question to a, a complex set of ideas is what is the conversation that we need to have and what would that conversation do to release us from those um, pathologies? Well, um, funny you should say that, Tony, um, because I've been working on a mathematical formula <clears throat> this morning. I thought it was a philosophical question. Um, well, maths is philosophical. In okay. fact, this is Quandong physics. Okay. Mm. <laughs> I, uh, I rang Stephen Hawking about it this morning and he's, he's run his eye over it and seemed, thinks it's a pretty solid theory. Yeah. I was really good at arithmetic in school. I passed Form 2 and, but failed Form 3. So did I. Yeah, well, it runs in the family. <laughs> Um, but I'm still pretty good, whereas I don't know how good you are, because you got lost this morning running around the river. Um, so here's my theorem on colony. Let A stand for the imperial force. Let B stand for the, their determination to take land from sovereign people. So A plus B equals C. I hope you're following this. It's complicated, um, but, you know, my brain can accommodate it. So A plus B equals C, dispossession. Let D represent the colonial Christian conscience. So A plus B equals C. C minus D, Christian conscience, equals E, the lullaby for child sleep, or E for excuse. So A plus B equals C, C minus D equals E. Add F for the facts of Aboriginal achievement dawning on Australian people and we get R for resistance against S, suppression, which causes S to the power of two, stupidity. 
S minus R equals L for love of country. And there you are, there's the solution, Tony. <laughs> it's a mere snack. Um, I really appreciate that, Bruce. Now can you answer the sure question? Um, <laughs> so, what's the conversation? What's not, the conversation? I understand that, but what yeah. is the conversation we I'm need to have? For that. those who... Um, yeah. I'm going to patent that. I'm going to make a bit of money out of that. Thank you, Bruce. You can't, you can't have it. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm sure you'll make some money out of that. Um, but the conversation we need to have is about our country. We need to have the entire conversation about it. In Dark Emu, um, there's a passage where I um, prove that Aboriginal people invented bread because there's a grinding dish from Cuddy Springs which is 32,000 years old and by incredibly deep research through Google, I found that um, the next nearest to that were the Egyptians uh, 18,000 years ago. Um, so I was saying that Aboriginal people, uh, by mere 16,000 years, had been the first people in the world to invent bread. But what I didn't know was that after uh, publishing Dark Emu, there was another uh, examination, archaeological examination in Australia, which uncovered uh, a grinding stone which had only been used for grain of 105,000 years. So that means it's, you know, I'll have to go back to form to arithmetic to work out the difference between 105 and 23 or whatever it is. Well, because 23,000 years is actually the bread making in Israel. 82. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I'm, I'm only good at Kwandong physics, mate. I, you know, the, the mere numbers I leave to other people. Um, so this is a huge achievement by our people. So Australia needs to look at their country and be absolutely delighted by this fact, not dismayed. We need to be delighted in Aboriginal achievement. We need to be delighted that in this country, archaeologists have found the oldest town on earth. Uh, that information will become available around December this year, being peer-reviewed at the moment. The science is done and dusted. Um, it can't be questioned. Um, and if we have the oldest town on earth, then Aboriginal people have also invented society. What country anywhere else in the world would deny itself the joy at living in a country that invented bread and society? Who, would, who else would do it but us? us Australians. And so the oldest human structure on earth is said to be at Brewarrina. No tourist bus goes there. It, uh, the centre of the more unemployment than most other places in Australia, mostly Aboriginal unemployment, and yet it is the old, it's the site of the oldest human construction on earth and Australia turns its back on it. There's only one book about the Brewarrina fish traps and it is minute and it is, has a, a black and white cover, the cheapest on earth, it is saddle stitched, the cheapest binding and that is our sole academic uh, representation of those traps. In 230 years of scholarship that's the best Australia can do. 
with that in mind, I mean, not, not to disagree the importance of that, is talking about what Australian society may not be, be able to countenance at, at the moment, or the difficulty of, of what I would say is sort of cultural maturity or even intellectual maturity, if the Barona fish traps became a, a side of significance that was, was more celebrated, could we do it though in a way that is, um, how would we do it in a way that is both respectful and has depth of meaning beyond a tour bus in the shallowest sense? I'm not saying a tour bus shouldn't go there, but mm. I, I, part of me thinks we've got to get beyond it just being an attraction in that sense. It's got mm. to have educational value. Yeah, it has to be, it has to be learned by Australians. Um, we have to learn the science, we have to learn the, uh, the spirituality of it. Um, but and we also have to insist that it's Aboriginal people who tell the story. Mm -hmm. uh, wherever I go, there are tours to Aboriginal sites. 80% of those are run by non-Aboriginal people. If the government was fair income about creating Aboriginal employment, if it really, really wanted to advance uh, Aboriginal social life and close the gap, uh, then it would, without spending a, a, an extra dollar, it would insist that those tours come through the Aboriginal community and don't go, oh, they don't want to do it. Maybe they don't want to do it because they feel intimidated by white Australia. Uh, maybe they don't want to do it because uh, our kids haven't had a sufficiently good education to equip them to do it. But if those two things were there, then there's an employment for our people and it will solve the, the uh, government's great anxiety about, um, about this gap between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. So if we were following that line, next time we saw a health emergency or an educational emergency in Aboriginal community, we wouldn't call in the army. We would call in a school teacher and a nurse. Well, I want to go to the, um, to the heart of the book now, and one of the, to me it seems that um, there was a, a clear strategy on your part, and as well as giving you good, you know, strong research material, but one of the things that you've said is that everybody loves a great explorer, a, a colonial hero. So one of your strategies was to go to the sources of colonial Australia, to go to the explorers who had documented and valued Aboriginal agriculture. So it seems to me that was both a strategy for you, but still also very important sources of information. Yeah, and I was led to that um, because I was, uh, I was having trouble with uh, a group of professors from ANU who were also on the board of a publishing house in Canberra who were resisting uh, the idea of dark emu. And after a meeting where they had expressed their dismay that I was speaking lies about Australian history, I realised that the way I was, had been telling the story was not going to be sufficient for Australia. The only way it was going to be successful was if I used sources that non-Aboriginal people revered. And um, Australia reveres a good explorer. They, they revere even more a very bad explorer, um, like Burke and Wills. Um, you know, they're, 
we love our failures in Australia and uh, Gallipoli amongst them. And, but in, the explorers were an extraordinary bunch of people. Lieutenant Gray in Western Australia decided that he wanted to be an explorer uh, when he was young and he was rich enough to be able to do it. The fact that he was incompetent um, had nothing to do with it. He became an explorer because he wanted to. And, um, uh, but the thing was he was well educated and he could write and he wrote a lot. And what he wrote uh, about the yam fields of Western Australia that he observed as the first white person to enter that country, stretching to the horizon, he'd walk around them and they'd get to a hill and look further south and there'd be another field stretching to the horizon. We're thankful uh, that he wrote that. It's unfortunate that when his uh, journal was published, the only information that was left out of the journal was that. Anything to do with Aboriginal people. The log houses that Aboriginal uh, people made, the logs were so large um, that only five men could lift them, or three women. Um, and the, um, see, I'm so good at maths. It just comes up all the time, doesn't it? Um, so it, it's, a, it's an, a, you know, how as a country do we allow that to happen? How have we allowed this information to be excised from uh, Gray's journal? You have to read the original uh, to actually find that. And it, Sir Thomas Mitchell saw nine miles of stooped grain. The very word stook is so English and so redolent of the harvest field. How come um, our great historians, Manning Clark included, never noticed it? Or if they noticed it, shuffled it to one side because it wasn't important. What were they looking for? The great massacres? The great um, rides through deserts that nearly killed them, and, but they, as stoic Englishmen, they survived. Is that what they were looking for? We're, we've got nine miles of stooked grain, and it's completely ignored. And that, that plant, don't interrupt me, Tony, my show. I was just... Um, <laughs> the, um, and, and that grain... I was just taking a breath. <laughs> after 13 kilometres, you need one. Um, yeah, Panicum decompositum was one of the grains that Mitchell saw that was stooped. And it's a beautiful grain. It's so aromatic. And when you're working with it, uh, you're just surrounded by this wonderful um, aroma. But it's also a beautiful taste. Uh, sprinkling it on the top of bread, in fact, converting it into flour and baking bread from it. But uh, it is more flavourful than poppy seed. You know, you won't be able to buy a loaf of bread in this country with poppy seed on it in a few years' time because we will be using panicum and it won't be my generation buying it. Well, we won't have teeth by then, so we won't go to eat bread. But you won't know what that is. No. <laughs> I don't know now. Ask, ask Anne-Marie if I know what time it is. Um, and I must congratulate all the librarians here and this wonderful building. I've been a around here now for a few days, about my fourth visit here, and this is an engine room of inquiry, this place, this library. I haven't been here on a day when it isn't crowded. Mm. Uh, so the librarians are doing an incredible job. And the city of Albury, um, the, the elders of, the, of this city, um, are doing a magnificent job to support it so well. If, of course, if 
uh, George Brandis finds out, he'll cut the funding in half. But um, <laughs> because he, he thinks he's got the only books, it's not okay, your turn wanna, now. I, I don't want to talk about George Brandis. Um, right I, I will, since you've raised his name, when I was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Award, I was introduced to George Brandis. And he said, you're a writer? And I said, yes. He said, I'm a writer too. I've, I've just written a book called The Success of the Liberal Party. And I said, it's a fiction, George. But anyway, <laughs> um, just a joke if you're a conservative, which could be possible in this city. But anyway, um, I do want to go to, to, to another point that... So you talk about you know, incompetent explorers, and clearly Thomas Mitchell was not incompetent at all. I, I've also read his free diaries into um, Australia Felix, as it's called. Why is it then that him, people like um, Stuart, or Sturt, sorry, they, they, they document this tradition of agricultural practice? They do it at length. Why is it then that after that period of exploration, we still get, and we get in fact a reinforcement of this notion of Aboriginal people as hunter-gatherers, and as aimless hunter-gatherers, I would say. So when the word nomadic is used, it's used in a very wandering way with no sort of sense of purpose. So why, why that shift? And why is that upheld so um, tenaciously into the 20th and even the 21st century? You go a, back to your a formula. plus B equals C. <laughs> C minus D, Christian conscience equals E. Um, it's because if, if, as a Christian country, you, um, you take the land from a sovereign people and you say, so therefore, you're stealing. And if you then um, murder uh, people, introduce smallpox to kill even more, um, and then deny it all um, as, a, as a Christian people, then you need, in order to talk to your people, the residents of the country, um, your voters, you need to spin them a story, and you need to spin them a story of Aboriginal incompetence. You've already spun the story of the incredible imperial excellence of Great Britain, the Great Commonwealth, uh, but in order for that to be um, palatable to Christians, you need to... It's all right, I'm not going to turn you into a frog. What yet. are you doing? I'm, I'm going to go... Oh. See, this, this painting here um, is a solace... <laughs> Uh, for Christians. It's about a, a child leading the wild beasts out of the wilderness and into the light. And I accepted that as just a, a pleasant little Christian uh, tract um, until I saw, and I'm going to try and point with a laser now, right there, and I didn't notice this until about three years ago. Uh, you can see there's a bridge here, so European people have already uh, begun colonising America. And that's William Penn down there talking to First Nation American people. And he's, um, he's negotiating for the land. The negotiation went like this. Um, the First Nation people, on their knees from the effects of smallpox and uh, murder um, and land de deprivation, uh, the impact of the killing of the buffalo, uh, treat with William Penn and say, if you walk from um, sunrise to sundown in a straight line, that will form the side of a square of land that we will allow you to have. Uh, William Penn's um, Christian family then uh, took that 
uh, treaty, trained a whole lot of America's best, best athletes at the time, and they ran in relay from sunrise to sunset and tenfolded the length of that side of the square and therefore got ten times as much land. Um, and, or is it a hundred times as much land? You, you, My maths has just let me down suddenly. Um, so it's a ruse. Mm -hmm. It's a ruse of uh, the Christian empire uh, to uh, make palatable the theft and murder of indigenous peoples. And so we get stuff like this, which is purporting to be about innocence um, and the spread of the light. Uh, but in fact, it's about justifying uh, the breaking of two, of the, at least two of the uh, commandments. So I, um, I think we, you know, when we do revise our history, we also have to revise those pillars that upheld that history. Okay, what you've just raised, I think, is for me, and just to give people a brief context, because I work in climate change research, my, my brief is to get people to talk to each other, simply, and to get communities who may be communities of difference, different opinions, to start to look towards each other and share stories rather than look away. And that's a very sort of simple idea, but it's a very complex task um, to, to get that to, to come to fruition. What, several things that you say, it's interesting, so you've, you've just talked about this sort of creation story, Christian creation story. I note that in one of your conversations you talk about when Europeans are documenting Aboriginal stories that have a scientific basis, you know, the, the, the content and context of those stories so much is often lost in translation, that's one thing that you say. So we have a, a, you know, a colonial fiction, as you've shown us, then you talk about the loss of the value of a story. You've also talked in another interview about the complexity of Aboriginal storytelling, and one of the examples you give is just the complexity of stories that are told, I think, in the southern coast area around the whale and the shark and the rainbow serpent. And you, you'd say, well, they're very complex stories and they can't be easily translated through, through English. So you have those three, at least three, they're three difficulties or three issues to, to, to face. But essentially what you're also saying, I think, in all of your work is, but what we do need to do, we do need to find ways to both share stories, to give greater access to stories and to privilege knowledge. So you've raised both, I think, the real difficulty that we face, but also for you, it seems to be the central desire of your work is to find a way for us to share stories that have value for all of us. So how do we do that? Well, we learn to love our country. I, I wrote a book called Convincing Ground. The subtitle of that was learning to fall in love with your country. And this knowledge, if we allow it, will transform our feeling for our country. It will deepen our feeling for our country. So many Australians I meet are craving uh, to love their country, um, so many Australians love wattle, they love eucalyptus, they get off aircraft from America, and I've seen people go on their knees and kiss the ground of Australia. This is a passion. People want to love the land, and I think people want the land to love them. And that is open um, to all Australians, uh, but we, we do have to understand this land's history. 
and we have to understand the land itself. And if we accept, um, and we will have to, uh, accept that Australian Aboriginal people invented society and invented bread and may have invented language and uh, all these other mathematics. tiny... Mathematics. Mathematics. Um, all these other tiny achievements. Um, then we have to understand how it was done. How did those old people in the government of humans, realising that the humans that Aboriginal people were dealing with were the same as humans all around the world, therefore they had the virtues of honesty, they had the virtues of kindness, they had the virtues of love and diligence, um, but they also had um, the ability to be cruel, um, to be violent, uh, to be greedy, um, and to be, have all those qualities of the human. How did the old people come up with the idea um, that everybody should be fed, everybody should be housed, and everybody, when they're old, should be cared for by the young? The ability to come up with that construct of handling human nature hasn't been tried anywhere else. And that is why here um, this civilization has lasted for, according to uh, Fulliger, 125,000 years. When I was going to school on King Island, um, I was told that Aboriginal people had been in Australia for 5,000 years. And, you know, gradually that uh, has gone up to, I think it's accepted now that 65,000 years um, is the time when Aboriginal people have been here, but you know it's going up by 5,000 years every six months at the moment, so it'll soon be 125,000 years. And who really cares? Um, it doesn't really matter, except to say that this is the oldest civilization on Earth, and because of, of its longevity, is the oldest. And to understand that, we have to know the stories that go with it. That the ironwork, the, the scaffolding which held this together. And one of them um, comes from St Helens in Tasmania, where I was with Uncle Max Harrison, who when he was 11 years old at Cathcart, at the foot of Mount Kosciuszko, was told that he had to uh, visit this drawing in the sand. It was drawn for him um, by the, his old Uncle Munns Hammond, and Uncle Munns drew the, the shape of the whale in a particular way and said, you have to find that, and then he rubbed it out. He said, do you remember it? Uncle Max said, yes, and he said, you have to find it. Well, he found it in March this year when he was 83. And that story, um, just briefly, you know how brief I can be, Tony. Um, no. This no. is very brief. Um, what happens is, during the sea level rise 13,000 years ago, um, people lost vast areas of their land. Uh, so people on the east coast, west coast, north coast, south coast of Australia had to retreat away from the rising sea. And they, there was great anxiety, as you can imagine, of having to say goodbye to your own land and retreat onto land which you knew was peopled by people related to you. And so the people are anxious and the whale says, stop it. Stop being anxious, I'll show you what to do. I used to be a land mammal myself. This is in the story. And, you know, it's just only been found relatively recently that, the, in fact, the whale was a land mammal. 
that went into the sea. So Aboriginal uh, people say the whale told the people how to come back onto the high land and save themselves, but the law was that when they did that, they were going to encounter people who were in fact their cousins, and they had to be polite. They had to share the land together. So the people losing land um, were faced with a problem. The people demanding um, succour on someone else's land had a problem, and the solution to it, according to the whale, was peace. You finished? Not quite. Okay. Um, I want to ask the question, which is, I suppose, goes to the heart of what you're saying. It's about moving from self-interest to, to common interest. I was at the Melbourne Writers' Festival over the last couple of weeks, and Clive Hamilton, um, who writes about climate science, if you ever want to put not only your head in the sand, if you want to bury yourself, um, read a Clive Hamilton book, you'll just burrow into the dirt and won't come back. Um, Clive Hamilton was asked a question about Aboriginal knowledge of, of climate, and he said, it's too late, we can't learn anything, we're in a desperate situation, we're in a state of emergency, and he said, it's of no use to us. I think one of the things that you've just articulated, which I'd certainly been thinking about before and during that talk, was that Clive Hamilton didn't get the notion of what we're talking about. It is philosophical knowledge, it is ethical knowledge, it is collective knowledge. Because if Clive Hamilton is right, and he's partially right, although I think he, there are issues with his books, if he says, well, we're facing a very desperate economic, social, political situation, what we need, the very thing we need is to look at societies that have dealt with these issues in the past and how did those societies adapt and face that, that very challenge. One of the things that you talked about is one of the reasons there's been, in some ways, a favourable reception of Dark EMU is the self-interest of people say, involved in issues around climate change who realise we're in a, a difficult situation, so they're more open to acceptance. And I don't think you said that as a hostile comment, by the way. I think it's a, a really informed comment. How do we then go from having investment in these ideas rather than our own self-interest to protect ourselves to a common interest that encompasses Aboriginal people, non-Aboriginal people, and I know migrants coming to this country, refugees coming to this country, the first thing they want to know is what is the Aboriginal story of this place? They understand that need. So how do we get to a, a common or shared interest? Um, well, Paul Keating said that um, if you ever find a horse called a self-interest in a race, back it with everything you've got because <coughs> you'll, you'll know it's trying. Um, <laughs> and it, I, I think... I think we will begin this process. People of goodwill um, will do it out of the goodness of their heart. Um, other people will do it out of the craven spirit of their soul. And uh, farmers will be paid to grow Australian grasses, Australian domesticated grasses like panicum, various kinds of panicum, various kinds of kangaroo grass, uh, the Australian areza, the Australian rice, um, the Australian sorghum, all of these grasses that we're experimenting with at the moment, um, Australians will grow them because a thing like kangaroo grass, for instance, one strand of kangaroo grass um, has a root mass like that. They sequester carbon. You never have to plough that land again. So you don't release more carbon. It's common sense. 
Uh, the, the yield per acre is not as great. But farmers will plant them because they will uh, be paid to do so. Um, they, they don't need to have a good soil. They'll be paid to do so. And it will have a positive effect on the country because carbon will be sequestered. The other thing about these grains and the tubers that I talk about in Dark Emu, which is available for a mere $35 outside, um, is that... I've got a second-hand copy here. Um, um, I just lost my track then. Um, I, I shouldn't tell jokes. Which, no, you I said $35, you were thinking in a self-interested way, that's why. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's right. That's, that's, that's karma right, right there. Paul Keating, Paul Keating was right. Um, but we need, to, we need to look at these plants because Aboriginal people domesticated only some of the plants available to them. Mm -hmm. And they domesticated the plants which were good for their nutrition. And a thing like kangaroo grass, for instance, which is very hard to deal with as a grain, um, Aboriginal people persevered with because it has this positive impact on the gut. And it's only recently in Western science that people have understood that there are more neurons in the gut than there are in the brain, um, and that the, the gut is actually talking to the brain, controlling the brain. So Aboriginal people all that time ago understood that the benefits of kangaroo grass flower for them was that it had a positive interaction with their gut and therefore their health and therefore their brain. So these are really, really important things and you know, it, we're not going to be in control of whether it's self-interest or egalitarianism. We just hope that if you can't be egalitarian, at least you can be uh, economically and intellectually self-interested and uh, do something sensible, like grow the, the foods that are domesticated to Australian conditions, don't need any more water than the continent provides, uh, don't need any fertiliser at all. In fact, you'll kill them if you put superphosphate on them. And they don't need pesticides. Uh, the common sense of this is stunningly obvious um, and it's, it's frightening to think we've waited so long to attempt it. Thank you. Um, now, we've got someone... Well, we have a microphone, so we're going to, in a moment, go to questions. And while you're getting your questions together, just if I could ask that the questions be as economical as possible, and so and the answers as economical as possible. Um, one of the things, just while you're gathering your thoughts, is that um, in an interview that I read of Bruce's, he said one of the things that people could do is to ask an Aboriginal person into their home to have a cup of tea, and Aboriginal, older Aboriginal women saying that they'd been into the home of a white person for the first time, had a cup of tea, and really enjoyed it. Um, I was really struck in a very disappointing way, a very major Aboriginal figure who I won't name, was I was having lunch with recently, he's in his late 60s, and he went into a, a non-Aboriginal house, well, he went to the gate when he was 12, a schoolmate at school, a white schoolmate in a country town, invited him home and he got as far as the front gate and wouldn't go any further because he was so afraid that what might happen. But next time he got invited into the home of a non-Aboriginal person in his house, he was 66. And this is a major, major Aboriginal figure. So it's something for us all to think about. So, who would like to start? There's one there, and then there's one over there, the man in the hat, after that. Hello. Oh, that's better. Hello. Thank you, Bruce, and your amazing book. It's just wonderful read. It's a wonderful read. 
with stewardship payments possibly for crops and for growing semida, how do we combat the, the enormous uh, corporate world which works in farming, the agribusiness world? And it's all about money, it's not about the environment. You know, we, as a land care coordinator, I'm working with farmers and it's about money. It's not about planting uh, you know, indigenous plants. But how, how can we make these stewardship payments for farmers work? Because I think they, they do it in Europe very well. Or, or, yeah, not too successfully, but it's about stewardship payments. It's about mm -hmm. economics. We've got to join our economics with nature. And I don't, we can't really put a price on nature. So, yeah, that's a... It's an <laughs> well, we, um, we could begin by not um, waiting for big corporations and big government uh, to do it. Um, we can take the, uh, the power into our own hands and we can vote. So therefore we can um, band together um, as thinking individuals and insist that government do things which are sensible for the environment and um, have an egalitarian purpose and, and band together like that and the banding together, it can be really simple. Um, I don't know how many people are going to go to the football finals um, in the next few weeks, uh, but last night I heard a, a crowd booing Buddy Franklin again. Um, and my answer to that is that when an Aboriginal footballer is booed, not for anything he's done on the field, but because of the colour of his skin, then the rest of the crowd should begin to cheer. So when, when governments start to promote coal and they start to promote Monsanto and they start to promote superphosphate, the rest of us uh, should make enough noise to drown them out. We can't, you know, there's so many people in the world today watching their TV at night waiting for Donald Trump to say something really stupid again, but how useful is that if we don't do anything about it? And forget Trump, start here. And, and call people to account. Uh, you know, I, I think Turnbull is, is struggling with his own party, obviously, and saying, he's saying dumb things about coal, but uh, we can help Turnbull um, by giving him a policy uh, that will win votes, that will win our vote. And we have to be enough. So we have to talk to their, our, whole, um, our whole population so that we encourage uh, intellectual thought in how we approach our country. So it's not a, I'm, I'm afraid it's not a really easy solution, but it's the cup of tea um, solution. Um, have a cup of tea with your neighbours um, and, and talk about uh, our world, about how vulnerable the world is and how well managed it was and could be again but then also mention population, because we're not going anywhere in this argument unless we control population. G'day, Tony. G'day, Bruce. Um, How you going? Yeah, not bad. Enjoyed your talk. Um, so today you've talked about being delighted about the Aboriginal... Um, rather than being dismayed by Aboriginal achievement, you said we should be delighted by it. And you brilliantly explained um, why it was important for this ruse of Aboriginal incompetence so as to justify colonialism and the, the, the legacy that is the British Empire. 
Well, my question is today is, it was important to have the ruse in the past. Do we still have this ruse? Are we still being sold the Aboriginal incompetence? And how do we, as Australians, move beyond this? And um, yeah, what do we do about it? It's about education, I think. Um, it was only a few years ago that um, an Australian government minister bemoaned the fact that Aboriginal people hadn't invented the wheel. And he was um, saying that as a, a way of deriding Aboriginal culture. And there's a truth in it. We didn't invent the wheel. Um, but neither did we invent gunpowder um, or the, the ability to melt lead so we could pour it into the mouths of people who disagreed with us. Um, so inventions are all relative. We, we just need to know our history. We need to talk about our history. And, you know, Aboriginal people aren't going away. White people aren't going to go away. So that discussion has, has to happen amongst us. Um, and we can't... If we try and do it any other way, then we're going to fail. So we have to um, start convincing our fellow Australians of what the planet needs and also to respect the, the incredible history um, in this land and how successful it was in handling the, the environment and looking after Mother Earth. I think if Australia began to think of the Earth as its mother, which is the Aboriginal belief, then we would begin to respect uh, the Earth and do um, less harm to it. Um, I was driving up here from Shep the other day and on the roadside, um, people were spraying a pesticide, um, weedicide on the side of the road so that the mower could get around the little things on the side of the road with the reflectors on them. And um, they were right beside the river. So, you know, we had rain last night, so a, a portion of that material is now in the river. Um, and we have to think about how we use poison in, in the country. Simple things like that are going to be so important to, to how we behave. You know, so many products that we make, like aerosol cans in the 60s, were poisonous to the planet. We did wake up. The good thing is we did wake up and the ozone, the hole in the ozone layer is shrinking um, or shrank till about 2011 and now it's opening again. We're doing something else to it. We, we, have, we have to be scrupulous in uh, the way we apply science and um, we're not. Um, we, sold, we sold superphosphate all around this country because someone owned it, not because it was necessarily good. Uh, dissolved superphosphate is poisonous to cattle. That's why Australian cattle are more prone to bloat than any other cattle anywhere else in the world because of the kind of um, fertil chemical fertilisers we use. It's interesting relative to the question. Um, Bruce and I were at the Christmas Hills um, Writers and Readers Festival in May. And the organisers of that festival, these are a community, mostly, mostly white middle-class people, sort of hobby farmers and so forth. A lot of them had lost everything in the Black Saturday bushfires. Like their houses, they'd lost their, their children. Some had lost their parents, their, their pets. And the organisers said they invited a, a whole group of Aboriginal writers as well as two Aboriginal people from the Corrandirk Wurundjeri community, Brooke Wandon and David Wandon. And they said, we wanted to invite Aboriginal people here because you understand loss 
you understand grief. And I said to Bruce, and I've written a long essay coming out about this, it was a remarkable day. So you've got a lot of these people who are dealing with this real grief. You had a group of writers who wanted to share with that. David Wondham was so remarkable that he said, we've got a body of Aboriginal knowledge that we want to share with you, but we also accept that we have lost knowledge that you, in fact, can help us with. There were people there. There was a young woman I met from Somalia who had been in Australia for three years and lived in a camp, I think, in Kenya for 10 years. She wanted to connect up with the Corinda community to get involved in the restoration um, tree planting project. So when I left there that day, and we've talked about this, it was almost like this is what we could do. But at the same time, we're surrounded by all this noise and disruption and negativity and, and racism. And so I thought it's almost like you had this thing that worked so well for that day, but how do you stop it from being impacted on so negatively? Or how do you stop it from imploding? And it's all going back to our little defence position. So that's, I think, one of the philosophical dilemmas that we face. And I, I think it's interesting, Bruce's response to your, your land, care, land care question. You know, when people are bullying, we need to cheer louder because there are more of us than we think sometimes. You know, often when we're in despair about these issues, we think we're, we're on our own. Um, so I, I think it's a really good question and a good response. So, We've got one more question over here and then I'm going to wrap up with a few closing words but um, I don't know if Bruce has got to get going straight away but you might be able to chat with him afterwards and get a book signed. Yes. Um, I'd just like to thank Bruce for an amazing book. It's, I'd really recommend everybody to read it because it's just such an eye-opener. Um, and I'm really interested because, you know, we, when we went through school, it was all about learning how Aboriginals lived in humpies and, you know, just picked a few the odd snake off the ground or something to eat. So I'm just really interested to know how soon it is that this sort of knowledge um, and it is going to be taught in our schools or is it already being taught in our schools or um, how far away is that? Mine. <laughs> um, Mangabala, the great um, Aboriginal publisher Mangabala in Broome um, is publishing a, a children's version, seven to 12 year olds of Dark Emu, and uh, that'll be available in May. And we, you know, people say, you know, how come we didn't know this? Well, we don't know these things because our libraries don't represent it. Um, our school libraries in particular. I was in Manjimup, 70% Aboriginal population at the school. I went into the school library looking for any book in that library that dealt with Western Australian Aboriginal people, there wasn't one. In the history section, there wasn't one. And I was thinking of the 14-year-old girl, 14-year-old Aboriginal girl with no history of education in her family, who is set an assignment. She wants to do really well. She, you know, um, her own home is such that there are no books in it. She can't use that as a reference. She goes to the school library to find evidence uh, to support her idea of um, her own people, and there she finds no reference. What does it make her heart do? It makes it plummet, and it tells her that her school, her community, doesn't care less about her. And I, I think a lot of our kids suffer from that. And we talk about retention rates in 
university and high school, and I think a lot of it is despair. I think a lot of our kids give up. I, I'm constantly arguing the case for kids um, in our communities who have resisted the teaching of history, have stood up in class when it was said to them that Captain Cook discovered Australia, things like that, and they've resisted, and they've had no support from their school. In fact, many of them have been suspended. And so until we change that, uh, we're not going to have a hope in hell. Mm. And I was mentioning libraries before. Um, this one and a few of the other libraries um, I've mentioned are, are exonerated because you look on the library shelves, an Aboriginal kid could come in here and complete that assignment with ease. But it's not universal, unfortunately. OK. Um, it's another great question. It's a good question to close with. Um, when I, I taught at Melbourne University for 15 years and students would say, well, why do we need Aboriginal people to tell Aboriginal stories? And my belief then and now is there's nothing worse than not having the dignity and the right to tell your own story. And secondly, that to have that story listened to and, and heard. And my way of explaining it to any student was pretty simple. If, if you come into my class today and you might want to tell me a story of family, you know, maybe you, your mum was sick today, maybe your dad's in hospital, maybe your brother, one of your brothers or sisters is crook, and that's important for you to relay that. And you start telling me that story, and I just turn around and ask Bruce how he went at the football, or look out the window. There could be nothing more disrespectful than that. And when Bruce talks about how that girl might feel, that's the very nature of not being able to tell your own story or to read the story of your community, is that terrible feeling you have. So it is absolutely a vital point to finish on. Um, I, of course, want to thank Bruce again for, for his wisdom and his um, generosity, which doesn't surprise me. But I, most of all, we, we want to thank um, you. This mm. is an ongoing conversation, um, not just between us two. I'd drive you mad if it was. Um, I true. really think it's an important conversation for the future of the country. It's not a conversation where you have to agree with everything either of us have said or anyone else has said, but it's a conversation that we need to keep having, listening to and respect each other's viewpoints. So um, thank you very much.